Hello, Brian's and possibly not Brian's. This is all the Brian's where a Brian interviews Brian's. <laughs> and this episode's Brian is a very informative Brian because he's a public high school teacher in Brooklyn and also a very knowledgeable travel hacker. So we'll learn all about what's going on in our high schools and also, you know, how to fly first class for pretty much nothing. Here's the interview with Brian Cohen. Uh, thank you for coming on the show and enlightening the community of Brian's with your knowledge. Uh, hello, Brian. I'm glad to be here representing myself as Good. a Brian. <laughs> um, the first part of the show, before the Brian-related questions, where we find out what kind of Brian you are. Okay. Um, so why don't you first tell us your name and uh, what do you do? Uh, my name is Brian Cohen. I teach kids math in a public school in Brooklyn. Uh, I'm an avid traveler, enthusiast, um, and I just enjoy life, I suppose. Great, okay, so... It's been going pretty well so far as a Brian. I don't imagine changing that anytime soon, so I'm just gonna keep at it. That's a good answer, that's good. Yeah. We'll dive more into the Brian uh, questions at the end here. Sure. But uh, I, I want to establish now that since summer is out, do you mm -hmm. mind if I call you Brian and not Mr. Cohen? Oh, I actually work at a first name school, so Brian... Oh, totally you do? Brian. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, the distinction that I usually make, because Tuesday was my last day of school, is... Summer Brian comes out. Summer Brian comes out. Summer Brian is very different. Summer Brian stays up late. Oh. On a weeknight. Oh. <laughs> Summer Brian goes traveling all parts of the world. Do you, Brian, do you wear shorts now? And yeah, like, Summer Brian wears shorts. Flip-flops even? Yeah. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> it's true. Okay, so I assume that most Brians actually have a general understanding of what a teacher does. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to start out with the first question being like a math-related question. Sure. And it's going to be a really, really tough one. Okay. Um, if you had to choose, if you had to give up one pie, what would you choose? Math pie or food pie? Ooh, um, you know, as an avid mathematician, I think it's pretty easy. I would give up food pie, mostly because I like cake more than pie. What if, what if food pie included pizza? Oh, you have good follow-up questions here. That's a good <laughs> point. Uh, then I hesitate a little bit more, but I still say food pie. Because I do eat pizza, but it's more infrequent. My my personal favorite type of like you know standard American fare is the the hamburger. So uh, pizza's there, but not like as important to me. Okay, wow, you 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 like pie a lot. I do. It's it's one of my favorite <laughs> irrational members. Um, do you celebrate National Pie Day? Uh, I do. Or International Pie Day, I should say. I don't know if it's international. Of I all the 270 <laughs> plus countries in the world agreed to it, but. Uh, I do celebrate Pi Day usually with my students or my wife. We do something kind of nerdy. Uh, every year people give me like little gifts, sometimes cards. I, I have these shot glasses that, you know, they measure how many ounces, one, two, three, four, and there's pie right between three and four. So I often put some beer in the pie shot glass and drink it. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, now an easier question, mm -hmm. but, but actually probably not easier. Mm -hmm. uh, why has the U.S. fallen behind in math? And uh, do you see this being corrected as someone on the front lines? Uh, it's interesting you bring that one up because that's actually false. Uh, when people say we've fallen behind. Okay, so this is a misconception, it's a misconception. that I have been adhering to and It's a very believing. big misconception across the, <laughs> the nation and the world probably. There, what you're talking about is... The, the NAEP scores and their international math tests, the, okay. uh, the TIMS and the ISME, I forget the exact acronym names, but they go back about 30 years and the U.S. has always been around the middle. So we've never gotten higher, we've never dropped, we've just been around the middle. 
So we've been doing what we've been doing, and a lot of it, I think, like the reason why people have this like really big math issue saying, why aren't we doing so well in math, uh, is that we're in the middle and there's this perception that, oh my God, we're America, so yeah. we should be on top. Okay. But then you look at the demographics of the country and how we're heterogeneous, whereas a lot of countries like Finland and Sweden who are more on top, they're fairly homogeneous. They also put more money per capita uh, into effective uses in their education system than we do. Uh, I, I've read a lot about this, so I, I okay. have strong, strong opinions. So All right, so Brian's out there. We are not falling behind in math, so you don't have to make up for that fact or lack of a math aptitude by diving into the maths, but if you want to. That's <laughs> true. Um, so, you know, in the way that Hamilton is being used as a teaching tool to mm-hmm. get the students excited about history and things mm-hmm. like that, do you wish there was an algebra musical, and do you see an algebra musical coming anytime soon? Well, we finally got a Museum of Math back in 2013, so that was a, a really big win. I think there probably are math musicals out there, just not as big of a hit on Broadway. I would okay. love it if there was some kind of like, um, oh God, who are the two? Leibniz versus, um, oh my God, was it Newton? The two, yeah, I think Frederick Leibniz and Isaac, not Isaac Newton, and the, the discoverer of calculus, whatever. They like battle it out on stage somehow <laughs> saying, no, I found the integral first. No, it's my derivative. Don't be so derivative. I could imagine all these punny jokes. You have no idea. So I think the world needs you to write the next, the big math hit musical. That could happen. Uh, I need to be vested in the teacher retirement system first. Okay. And then I can go away from that. We'll see. Okay, so... Um, I haven't been in high school in a while, um, mm-hmm. but it seems like the high school experience is must have, have be changed so much now because of new technology mm-hmm. and like everyone having a phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, how does it work with phones in, at your school? Um, is there a school-wide policy, or is it like up to individual teachers? Uh, well, there used to be a New York Department of Ed policy that schools were uh, essentially banning phones. And there was sort of this sub-business around the city where there would be these mobile vans bringing essentially small lockers and kids would pay a dollar to put their phone in the van for the day. Now, that only existed at high schools that had metal detectors because they could actually, you know, check out if you had a phone. My school has never had a metal detector. So even though that policy existed across New York City, many schools without metal detectors didn't ever enforce it because that would be impossible. So since that policy has changed... Individual schools are allowed to do what they please to a certain extent. We can't ban phones from schools, but we can say use phones when appropriate in the classroom. So my personal opinion is that unless I'm asking the student, you know, use the phone to take a photo of something mathematical or use it to record data from an experiment, I want the phone to be away Uh unless they're doing some kind of research with it because that's the biggest issue we have students texting. uh, And very infrequently on certain projects, we have students using new math-related apps that just take a photo of an equation, solve it for you, oh, show man. all the work, and then you just copy it down. That is amazing. I didn't know yeah. that existed. Okay, so technology is changing the high school experience. Yes. Um, I would Not so as much as people think it is. <laughs> people think, oh my god, we have computers everywhere, the internet, great. Students still need a lot of training in how to use it. They know <laughs> Facebook through and through, they know Snapchat, they know all of these new apps. Yeah. But they don't know how to do a Google search for real. So that's one thing that we have to teach them. Train them how to use keywords. Yeah, how to use keywords, how to use and, or, all of those, you know, binary coding things. So they need to learn that stuff. Okay. Um, Well, how often do you still then hear students say, uh, Brian, not Mr. Cohen, Brian, uh, why do I need to learn algebra? Because we all have, like, a calculator in our Mm -hmm. pockets now on our phone. And, And what do you say to them? 
So in my first like three years of teaching, when I heard that, I actually tried to find practical applications for every single thing that we were doing in class. Yeah. And it got exhausting. <laughs> and I realized after a while, they weren't really asking me that question on the whole. Some really want to know. Yeah. But most students weren't asking me that question expecting an answer. They were saying it because they were frustrated. And so all it implies is they need help. Okay. So I had this one student. <laughs> this is this a cry year. for help. Okay. It's a cry for help. I had one student this year who would always ask that question. Um, and, and I would always say to him, you know, I get that you're frustrated. Can you tell me where do you not understand what's happening here? Yeah. He would tell me. I would help him. And then he would have one of those like, oh, moments. And he would get back to work and forget his question. Ironically, at the very end of the year, he didn't ask me a question about where can I use a certain topic. And I'm like, hey, do you want to know? Do you want to know where this goes? He's like, yeah, I really do. So I think flipping that on its head and getting the kid excited about it instead of having them frustrated about it, then it leads more into like a useful application. They can be like, oh, that's so cool. I didn't know a parabola models the trajectory of whatever, a basketball or a missile or a rocket ship or, you know, anything. Okay. Um, so you said that like technology uh, being changing the classroom is being overhyped, mm-hmm. but like, are there, what are ways that it has been actually beneficial in your experience? Like I saw that like just yesterday, Amazon had like signed a three year deal with the New York system to provide like eBooks and lessons mm-hmm. and things like that. Like, like, do you take, do you guys use those resources or in your experience? Probably the, the biggest use of technology, I'll, I'll do it on two sides, the teacher side yeah. and the student side. The biggest use of technology on the teacher side is efficiency and planning communication with colleagues and with students and parents, and storage. So I have all of my lesson plans for the past seven years stored on Google Drive and I can access them at any moment, right? So that's really, really useful for me. I don't have to look through binders. I can just do keyword searches, find stuff, change it every year to make it better, and then implement it. On the, also on the teacher side, I should say, um, we also have, we can show videos more easily when it's appropriate. We can. Um, track data easier so we can intervene with students faster. There's a program we used highly this year called IXL, which is not the only type, only one of its type, but it exists. Like these sort of give you a whole bunch of problems as a student. The students try it and the teacher looks at a whole database spreadsheet of feedback. These students are getting these answers wrong, so intervene in these ways. So all of that data collection is also really helpful for us. On the student side, Communication is a very big thing, which they still need help learning how to communicate using email because they don't know there should be a subject. You should use like body paragraphs and punctuation and uppercase letters, you know, simple things like that that maybe I was trained when I was in high school because the internet was just becoming ubiquitous, but they've never had that training. That training is sort of expected, so we have to teach them. Um, But they generally are more easily able to find information And so we train them how to find information and verify if it's accurate or inaccurate. The the best thing I think we can train students nowadays is how to know if a website is a valid resource. And we say Wikipedia is great to show you valid resources, but never cite Wikipedia. It's not valid. And then we try to train them, oh, once you're at the valid resource, then how do you look at it? So things go faster, definitely. Communication is a hell of a lot easier. Storage, even for the students, they still have their work going back you know, four years in high school at our school and maybe even further back at their other schools. So if they want to make a portfolio to apply to college, they can. It's all there. You know, so it's, it's I had a, um, a friend, principal, and an educator friend back in Philadelphia who said technology should be as if it's air. It should be around you. Mm-hmm. You know, it shouldn't be the focus. You should just use it like it's a commodity or a resource. And so I think 
people are starting to do that in schools more and realizing, well, I don't necessarily need a smart board, but a projector, yes, because the projector can show all of these things. So figuring out what technology is useful and when is really critical. Okay. Like, how about, like, uh, social media? Like, how, how has that changed the high school experience from different than how it was when we went to high school? Um, th- There's this obviously the, cyber, cyber bullying issues yeah, and all sorts of things like that. This is the biggest thing that I think could be really useful, but I think over the past, like, three or four years when I think about it, I think of it more in a negative sense. I have had Facebook for so many years now, yeah. and students try to find me, and I've actually made a, a teacher... Facebook page so I can so connect with them separate right and so I haven't actually used it in like two or three years because I haven't found a huge use for it communication wise but it is a way of communicating with students so if they need help from me and I've had Facebook message conversations with students you know I don't know how to solve for x in this equation can you help me yeah and I've done that over Facebook messenger that's totally fine how crazy <laughs> um, you can set up Facebook groups you can set up uh, for you know for your class for your school it already sounds so different than when we went to high school right yeah, yeah it is yeah. and it, it just puts the school out there in a very yeah. very different way on the other hand this is the, the example I always give instead of just writing a note about you know some random student and putting it in the bathroom it's negative so maybe a couple hundred people see it now you put it on Facebook or Twitter or snapchat and a couple thousand people see it and if it gets even worse than that, a couple million people. That's more rare, but it happens. And so I think that negative aspect, we really need to train the students to understand um, how to be good digital citizens. And that's the term a lot of educators use nowadays. It's how to do a Google search, how to communicate over email, but also on social media. Yeah. How to, to not be uh, invasive, uh, potentially perverted, like bullying. I, yeah, I think that's something that's going to be, it's like a huge part of like just parenting now is teaching your children this stuff. It, it is huge. a huge part of parenting. I think the unfortunate thing is that either not all parents know about it or not mm-hmm. all parents have the time. Yeah. Especially yeah. in any economy in New York City. Where or did, you, yeah, just keep know. up with the latest yeah, little things right. people are on. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, another way that high school is different, I guess now is that you're, your teachers now have blogs on teaching, mm-hmm. and in your case, travel hacking. Mm-hmm. So uh, can you just tell all the Brian's out there what your URLs are? <laughs> let's, let's get that sure. information out there first. Um, so I have two blogs. One I've been writing on for about five years now about education. Yeah. That's just my name, bncohen.com. Yep. Uh, and I've been writing there not re- recently because of a whole bunch of end-of-year stuff at school, but just about my thoughts on education going the past five years. Starting off in Philadelphia where I lived, then I moved to Brooklyn, and so talking about the DOE, talking about national things, I got into a fellowship called Math for America, talking about that, uh, and really just trying to delve deep into some education issues, like what you're describing, is America really bad at math? Why have we gotten worse (laughs) when we haven't really gotten worse? Um, The other blog that I have is a more recent interest on travel hacking, like you mentioned. It's gateb3, the number three, dot com. Okay. And it's all about my learning over the past year and a half of credit card sign-up bonuses, uh, error fares, trying to find the best deals on flights, how to leverage your certain credit cards to buy certain things so that you can go certain places. Uh, And I've had a lot of fun learning all the ins and outs of that over the past year and a half. So your students, yes, they can now learn your views on teaching as well as how to get a really good deal on airfare. And And ironically (laughs) enough, I did teach them exactly that. In, In May, we had workshops on financial literacy, and so we taught the students about you know, nutrition and finance, uh, rooming and finance, real estate, finance, and credit and finance. And so at the end of the credit workshop, I said straight up, hey, guys, just so you know, 
all this stuff that I do is because I have good credit. And so if you want to travel around the world in first class for free, eventually, you need to have good credit. Okay. Yeah. So were they more interested in the travel hacking than math? What would you say? <laughs> uh, it really depends on the day. <laughs> Sometimes the stuff that we're doing in, in math class is really interesting pattern-wise to them or application-wise to them. And there were definitely some students in the financial literacy class who were like just sitting down, like looking into space for some reason, <laughs> even though I thought it was fascinating. But again, I find everything with numbers fascinating. Okay, so we'll, we'll get more into travel hacking in a bit, but can sure. you just kind of give us more of like a general overview of the school that you teach at? Just in terms of like class size, like uh, demographics, just like mm-hmm. paint a picture of this just like environment. Sure, uh, my school is called the Brooklyn School for Collaborative Studies. It is a New York City public school in Carroll Gardens, New York. A lot of people think it's a charter school, so I have to emphasize that it's a public school, and I'll describe why in a moment. Um, First of all, we are a first-name school. We are that way because we're part of a number of different networks, one of which is called EL Education. Uh And EL Education was founded actually a long time ago, formerly an organization called Outward Bound, which still exists. And the whole idea is to have strong relationships with students, between students, between staff. You get to know each other better. And if you know each other better, you will learn together better. So first name comes from that. Uh, We also have a a daily class called Crew and a motto that we are crew, not passengers, meaning we take an active role in our educational process. We don't just sit back and let it happen to us. Again, both as staff and students. So every day for half an hour, I meet with the same group of students I have for the past three years until they graduate next year. And we talk about social and emotional development. We talk about current events. We talk about whatever they need to talk about so that when they're finished high school, they have learned something about themselves and can apply it well to their future. So a lot of that comes from, uh, we do a camping trip uh, and with every ninth grade class for five days in the woods, no showers. They emphasize, they hate the fact <laughs> there are no showers. But by the end of it, they're like, oh my God, I did they're all, all New York City things. kids. You it's know? true, it's true. So, so that one network makes it very, very different for our experience at our school. Um, so the kids, let me talk about them too. Uh, we try to match the demographics of New York City, which I don't remember the exact ones right now because I'm a recent transplant from Philadelphia. But I think we have around like 40% Latino Hispanic students, 35 to 40% black African American students, uh, some around 10 to 12% white, and then we have a mixture of Asian Pacific Islander, African immigrant, um, Indian, Bangladesh, things like that. Um, so it's a very diverse school, and mm-hmm. one of the most fascinating things to me, I think, is because of our association with Outward Bound and Yale Education, I don't really see like diversity issues. People hang out. You know, yeah. It doesn't matter what is the color of your skin or your nationality or your background. They just make friends, and they yeah. stay that way for four years or seven years because we're actually a 6 through 12 school. And then when they graduate, they stay in touch you know, with each other and with us. So we always see graduates come back, and they say, hey, how can I help? Do you want me to move some boxes or talk to your students about the college experience or all these kinds of things. So like, what about you like, as a white guy then? Mm-hmm. Have you ran into any challenges or any sort of disconnect at all with students uh, who are then the majority of them coming from different backgrounds mm-hmm. then. I mean, I always worried about when I started teaching eight years ago, yeah. like what are they going to learn from me, a white middle-class Jewish kid from the suburbs? Yeah. You know, and uh, I actually spoke to a number of students when I started teaching, you know, more one-on-one, one-on-three conversations. You know, wh- what do you think of me as a person and how can I connect to you when my background is so different from the average person of Philadelphia or New York City? And a lot of them say to me, you know, yeah, you're different, but it doesn't matter as much as I might think. 
And so I just need to get to know them and forge these relationships. I do think overall we need to have more diversity in our teachers across America. I think that's really helpful, not just for the students, but also for the staff to realize that racial issues and, and demographic issues are endemic to our society right now, and we do need to change that. So the only way that I'll learn is if I meet people of different backgrounds. Yeah. And our staff, I don't know, is definitely majority white. So white men, women, doesn't matter. Like, we need more diversity on staff. So what would you say to, like, uh, like white uh, parents that are, like, on the fence about putting their kid in, like, a majority white private school versus mm-hmm. a more diverse public school? I think it personally, it depends on what they want. Yeah. Um, I've thought a lot about this for my future children as well because I went to a Jewish day school for seven years and I loved it. Then I went to a public school that was like 60% Jewish, so it wasn't yeah. a hugely <laughs> amount different. But I do think there's an important fact about diversity. Like we need to educate our children and they need to see people of different backgrounds. So unless there's some religious or a particular curricula component of the school you want to send your kids to, I would opt for public schools, personally. And I think the school that I work at right now, it's the first time I've ever said this uh, on the podcast, radio, whatever, but I would send my kids there in a heartbeat. And I think they would love it. Uh, I don't know if they would ever love it if I were their teacher. That no, might no, be awkward. No, but, no. no they, they would hate it. <laughs> right, they would hate that part. But like the school itself is a wonderful place for kids to grow and learn and become who they want to become. So... I definitely err on the public school side of things, even though I went to this private Jewish day school and debate with so my wife frequently. So what are your frequently. opinions then on, like, you mentioned charter schools then, mm-hmm. because, like, there's some controversy around, like, them being, you know, a private school but getting, like, public funding mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Do you have any uh, opinions on that? I have strong opinions on that. Um, <laughs> the general gist of my thoughts are that charter networks, like Success Academy, yeah. Uncommon Schools to a lesser extent, um, Achievement First... All of these seem more corporate to me, and from what I've read, act more corporate. The Success Academy like got-to-go list, I forget what it was called recently, but Eva Moskowitz, the CEO, got in trouble because there was a list of students that they were trying to counsel out uh, from their schools. So I find they say they care and their kids do perform pretty well on tests, like standardized tests, they do. They learn how to take a test well, but I don't trust their education as much as a public school. Now, the individual charter schools here and there, them, you'd have to look at a piece-by-piece basis, and probably they're pretty good. They're on par with or maybe a little bit better than some of the public schools in their area. And the example of that I have is from back in Philadelphia, a school called the Foreign Arts and Cultural Treasures School, FACT Charter School. Okay. And it was opened in Chinatown at least, I think, 10 to 15 years ago because there was no public school there, and there's no public school focusing on Asian issues. And so this group made one. And I had a friend who worked there for five years and said it was honestly a great school. So it really depends on the independent school. But yeah. I think generally smaller charters, like one or two in a network, yeah. fine. Larger charters, then you get issues of like corporation, greed, advertising, whatever. Yeah. And I have negative opinions about those. <laughs> well, yeah. First of all, like I can't even imagine what it's like going to high school in New York City. Like It's mm-hmm. much of an experience than me like in the Midwest. It's the largest public school district in the country. Yeah. Um, but like even like public schools here like have this crazy like admissions process. What's the deal with that? That's a bad question, but what's the deal <laughs> with that? <laughs> we'll go Seinfeld there for yeah. a minute. So this is something I'm learning about because I, like I said, I'm from Philadelphia, really yeah. the suburbs of Philadelphia, so I never had to apply. Yeah. You My go to, you go to was, school where you, you go, go to high school. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's what happened. Um, when I worked in downtown Philly, 
there was a smaller application process, and here it's huge. Now, I learned that all schools generally you can either apply to or they're within your neighborhood zone and you can just go there. It is pretty ridiculous, though. We do have a middle school at at a part of uh, BCS. And every eighth grade year, there's like this confusion that our counselors help the students a lot. Our assistant principal help the students understand what's out there and what they want. And then like 70 to 80 percent of our kids for the past two years have just come from our middle school to our high school because they want to stay. So that, I think, means we're doing something well. Um, but outside of that, I have a little bit less knowledge, unfortunately. I know there are three schools that have these required tests to get into. Mm-hmm. I think it's Stuyvesant, Brooklyn Tech, and Bronx Science, I believe, although I'm not sure on the names. Um, otherwise, it's just, like, complicated and annoying. Yeah. That's what I've heard. So since there's this, like, admission process for, like, you public schools, mm-hmm. then are students traveling from, like, longer distance around the metro area oh, yeah. then? So are there some crazy commutes then that kids have? Yeah. My first year at BCS, I taught a student who went an hour and a half each way. Jeez, okay. <laughs> and so she was late to first period class, and I'm like, I like, I don't want you to have to wake up at 4.30 in the morning to yeah. get to school on time, yeah. so sleep until 5. Like, I, you know, what can I say to that? Go to your local school, but she loved our school, and she was doing pretty well at our school, so, I, you know... Despite her being late, she was still passing those classes. So I, you know, yeah. the students make those decisions. Parents make it with them. Yeah. And as long as they can still perform well in the school, they do what they do. I guess on the flip side in New York, you probably have amazing, like, field trips. <laughs> so we're more unique. Um, I think there are some pretty amazing field trips out there. We have even more amazing ones. Oh, okay. We actually do field work as a part of EL education four times a semester. On a Thursday, we have something called an EL Thursday where we nix the schedule, one of the core classes makes a schedule for each grade. So I usually teach ninth grade algebra. The past two years, I have organized a data day where for the first half of the day, students go to, I think it was like five or six different sites across New York City and learn about how they use data. So we had the New York City, Center for New York City Affairs, uh, Donors Choose, uh, a nonprofit that supports teachers getting supplies. uh, Matt Lansky and partners and advertising firm, all these different places took, you know, 15 students in, gave a presentation for like an hour, a workshop for an hour on how they use data, and the students came back and compared what they saw. And so that was the intro to a unit that I was running where students asked their own questions. What affects students' grade point averages? And then they had to gather their own data, and they had to display it and make a report and then make a presentation in a roundtable of their real life analysis of that data. (laughs) So that's just my day, right? (laughs) We had students uh, from our bio course help uh, swab parts of the New York City subway for bacteria as a part of a larger research study that some bigwig is doing at like NYU or Columbia or something like that. Uh, That sounds like my girlfriend's nightmare. (laughs) Yeah, we we had students do uh, not just like clean up of a park, but talk to the people who clean up the parks. Why do parks need to be cleaned up? You know, analyzing that whole field. Uh, we had students learning trajectory by learning archery and actually analyzing, you know, distance and speed and the curve and all kinds of stuff like that. So we do that four times a semester, and this is our second year doing it, and it's pretty successful. All right, so Brian's out there. If you're uh, deciding where to go to high school, and you probably have no choice of this, if you go to high school <laughs> in New York... You might have a very long commute, but you'll have a pretty amazing field trips, especially if you go to collaborative Brooklyn. I think so too, yeah. (laughs) Um, So is there any other ways that, uh, since 
you've taught in Philly and you've mm-hmm. taught in New York that you see like a difference between the two high schools. And I mean, I guess it's just so specific to where you're teaching. I guess it can be. I mean, if you know anything about Philadelphia public schools right now, they're not really <laughs> sort of being run into the ground. Unfortunately, there's a huge uh, okay. budgetary crisis in Pennsylvania in general mm-hmm. between the Republican legislature and the Democratic governor, and it has been going on that way for years now. Uh, before this governor, there was a Republican governor, and he, he cut a lot of the funding for public education in, in Pennsylvania. And so Philadelphia was the hardest hit because it got the most funding because it's the largest city. Um, so I taught in schools when there were budget cutbacks. I actually taught in three schools in four years uh, because of budget cutback issues. I was, like, moved around a lot, okay. which I do not recommend for your first four <laughs> years of teaching. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, but I still have friends who teach there, and they really enjoy their students and their staff. They just are severely under-budgeted. They haven't had a raise in three years, and they've gone for more than 1,000 days without a contract. Flip that to New York City, where with the new mayor, de Blasio, the UFT did get a new contract. I actually became a union rep at my school this year, so I've been learning more about that. Um, we you know, have pretty solid health insurance, and the retirement benefits are actually pretty amazing once you've been in the system for 10 years. So I'm just like, got to get to 10 years at least and then make some decisions about if I want to write a book about teaching or travel hacking or whatever, you know. <laughs> um, so what would you say is, we'll get some more general questions here mm-hmm. in teaching. What's your reputation as a teacher? Are, are you, are you, do you real, rule your classroom with an iron fist? Are you a softie? <sighs> you know, I think I know the answer to this question, but it's hard because I'm not the student in the room, right? So from the students I've talked to, I think I'm known as a very firm person, generally strict about like certain rules that are in place, but I will help you to no end if you put in a solid amount of effort. Okay. And I tell that to all of my students, that if they email me with questions, I will email them back. If they come after school for help, I will stick with them. If they ask a question in <laughs> class that is a more deep question than, how do I do this? I will help them to no end. But if they sit there and stare off into space, or if they ask me for a pencil for the fifth day in a row, you know, then I can't do as much for them because they need to, to show up themselves, you know? So that's definitely a part of it. I, uh, I'm known for puns. I do have a strong appreciation for puns. Good. Um, and little corny jokes. Uh, my wife and I have these debates of whether or not they're called corny or bad jokes. I think we shouldn't judge them. They're corny jokes. Uh, you can decide. So you're gonna your be own. you're gonna be a good dad if you choose to be a dad. I have been practicing the dad jokes for a long yes. time. Yes, uh, and I love them. Um, so I use them a lot in my classroom. Is there anything that you're uh, uh, anything that you teach that you're continually surprised that you know adults just don't know? Uh, probably like simple addition and subtraction of like three digit numbers. Okay. Today I <laughs> the was... The fundamentals. The fundamental. Well, certain fundamentals, <laughs> okay. right? You can add 7 and 12. Fine. Yes. You get 19. Great. But let's say you wanted to add 15 and 275. I think for some people, it takes them a while or they automatically go to a calculator. Mm-hmm. And so today when I was buying something and they added it correctly, I was like, oh, okay. Like you did that pretty fast in your head. Normally I'm the one who has to do it fast in my head. Uh, and so I try to make sure my students can do that, and I teach them the tricks that I use to do it quickly, because tricks do exist. Oh, yeah. And they're based in mathematical fact. So if you know the mathematical fact, the trick comes easy. If you try just to go to the trick, you're not going to remember it long term. So that's the kind of stuff that we try to talk to our students about, the, the elegance of the mathematical patterns underneath it, so that when they get to the application, it's easier for them, because they already know those patterns. 
Nice. Yeah. yeah. That, that's a good, uh, sounds like a good teaching philosophy, actually. Yeah, um, I try. But on the flip side, uh, you know, if you had to take a high school test in another subject now that mm-hmm. you've been not a student for a while, mm-hmm. how do you think you would do? I think pretty well, I mean, depending on the subject, obviously, but I, I like, I have a general, like, learning device. I love to know things about everything. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad is a chemist, so I, I love chemistry and physics and science, and my mom's a doctor, so there's a lot of things that I've been reading and, and just learning my entire life that would help in general. Probably the toughest thing would be a foreign language. I try really hard to learn languages. I know that was my, always my worst subject. Yeah. Well, I, I went to Jewish day school, so I learned Hebrew, and then I lived in Israel for a little bit, so I know that pretty well. Uh, I learned Spanish in middle school and high school, and then visited a couple of Spanish-speaking countries, so I know that pretty well. I'm trying to learn Russian right now because my wife is from the Ukraine, and her grandmother speaks mostly Russian, so I want to speak to her grandmother more. Um, but still, foreign languages is probably the deficit that I have right now. Okay. Um, I feel like teachers always have good anecdotes. Um, do you have any good stories just around cheating, plagiarism, homework excuses, anything that comes to mind right now? Uh, yeah, a cheating story. A really... You can keep it vague so the student doesn't, you know, sure, sure. happen upon this podcast for some reason. <laughs> no, I think if the student did, it, it wouldn't be too bad. I'll use gender because I think that only discriminates about 50% of the population. So he... Mm-hmm. So I was giving my final, final exam. It was a two-day exam because we only had 45-minute periods each day. So an hour and a half of testing. And the second day, this kid I saw from afar, maybe about you know, 50, 25 feet away from me, he was filling out his test, and I knew he understood the material pretty well. I knew he was going to do a pretty good job. And he had his scrap paper that he kept writing things on and then putting it underneath his test. <laughs> and then writing things on and underneath his test. And I was thinking, why would he do that? He knows the material. So he's probably writing down his answers. The question was, for who? And so I looked immediately to the student's left, my right, and was like, ah, yeah, he needs help. <laughs> so did I hear them talking? Not really. Did I see them talking? Not really. But, you know, I can't police everything all the time because students have questions here and there. Yeah. I want to try to answer them if I can. At some point, I saw the student to his left didn't have scrap paper, and then a minute later did have scrap paper. And he was trying to hide it under his test. And so I walked up and I said, oh, what is that? And he said, oh, it's just my scrap paper. Nothing's on it. And I said, can I see? And he said, no, nothing's on it. And I, I looked at him. I gave him, you know, the teacher look. Yeah, yeah, The yeah, incredulous, yeah. skeptical yeah. face of yeah. disbelief. <laughs> and he said, oh, you can have it. And I looked at it, and it had all the answers to this test. So not only had the first student understood everything, he also had time to write down answers for himself and for this second student. So I took it away. He didn't have enough time to actually use it for his test, so his test was still actually valid. And this is where I think there's a divergence between how I, as an early high school teacher, um, focus on plagiarism and cheating versus like a college-level situation. I didn't give them a zero for the final because I knew neither of them had actually had any academic outcomes from this cheating, right? It was all behavioral. Mm -hmm. And so after the final, I spoke to each of them in turn, we talked about it. They freely admitted that it was cheating. Honesty is the best policy. And so we talked about what does that mean long term? What kind of people do they want to be? Does the first student want to be the kind of person that helps somebody else too much so they don't learn? Like giving answers is not going to help someone learn. No. He said that flat out. He just felt bad for yeah. the second kid because it was the final exam. He wanted to help him out. The second kid, do you want to be known as someone who like didn't put the work in or cheats? Like The work doesn't reflect what you know. He said, no, it was just, it was the final. Like, he really wanted to show that he knew things even though he didn't. (laughs) And I said, well, you know, how can you make sure next time you'll know things? And so we came up with a plan. 
And so to me, there's a difference between the academic and the behavioral. There were no academic negative things that happened from that experience. He didn't have, the second student didn't have the sheet long enough to use anything from it. But the behavioral consequence, I think they really felt bad that yeah, I yeah. knew that they had cheated. Yeah. And so they apologized profusely. And when I talked to them, we came to this outcome of, I hope, because I don't know exactly how the students think, but I hope they'll look at it differently next time. You know, they'll, the second student will plan a bit further ahead and ask the first student for help the week before the exam. Because that's totally fine. You know, that's good. Or they just download the app that apparently cheats for them. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right, there is that too. <laughs> Which apparently exists now. Yeah. Um, so what would you say is the, aside from, you know, finding people cheating in your class, like what is your least favorite part of your job and then also your favorite part of your job? Uh, let's see. The least favorite part of my job is probably dealing with students who negatively affect the outcome for others. Like every once yeah. in a while you have a student that is just totally disruptive in class. You know, maybe they're throwing a ball across the room or a paper airplane or they're shouting or they're listening to their phone without a headphone so everybody can hear it, that kind of thing. Like if they make the decision to sit in the corner and do nothing, that only affects them. Once they affect other students in the room, it's no longer fair. And then that's when I clamp down. Yeah. And so I hate dealing with that because you never know how that student's going to react possible they're having a bad day and so i try to ask them but it's also possible they're just jerks or they don't know how to interact positively with adults because they've never had a positive interaction with adults and so i've had a couple of those over my years of teaching uh it's rare but when it happens usually i get support from administration from uh counselors from whoever i can get to help me out and usually it works itself out within a couple of days you know i get their support we try to have a meeting sometimes the meeting doesn't go well and then the answer is just you know, I give the kid the work. I try to help the kid. But if they decide not to do it, I'm not going to push them because I know if I do, they're going to stop other kids from learning. Yeah. And so I won't push them. Right. So what about grading? I've heard from various teachers mm -hmm. that grading is their least favorite part of the job. <laughs> you know, it's somewhat tedious, but I wouldn't say it's my least favorite part because okay. then I get to learn what the students know and I get to or, learn. Or you haven't taught long enough and it hasn't gotten to be a chore yet <laughs> i don't know uh, on average half of teachers leave by year five so i'm already beating that statistic so i oh, feel pretty okay. good about that um but i think grading gives me an insight into what students know and so yes it takes a long time and i hate when students come in the day after a test and they say did you finish grading and then i say here's a math problem for you i have 150 <laughs> students each test takes 10 minutes to grade how many hours is that and they like do the math in their head or usually they go to the calculator and I say, there hasn't been that many hours between yesterday and today. Oh, man, you're turning every question into a math uh, I know, challenge. I hate it, but, like, <laughs> that's what I do. All right, right, what's your favorite part of your job? Uh, the favorite part is those aha moments, which could be a relational aha moment where a student realizes, oh, if I really put effort in, I can make it. Yeah. Or it's the aha moment where they figure out, oh, my God, this pattern works for these five other things as well. So if I know this pattern, I know these five other things too. That's so cool, right? <laughs> so seeing those things happen or, or seeing them get interested in something that is totally unrelated to math. Because again, yeah. I, I had this, these crew students for three years now. And this one kid after a college visit we took last year said, hey, Brian, I want to go here. Yeah. I'm going to apply here. And when he got back, his attitude was not totally changed because he was already pretty good academically, but he was more focused. And he said, you know, if I need to do this and this and this to get to get to that college, I'm going to do these things. Yeah. And I'm going to do them well. 
And right. so I, I like to see when students figure out, if they can, where they want to go and what they want to do. No, that's yeah. great. It's amazing. Uh, I, I actually, I had a question of like, I was going to ask you about, you know, does seeing like student breakthroughs and these moments like make it all worth it and everything like that. But then I thought, you know, it might be kind of cheesy. It's <laughs> so cheesy, I'm glad but that it's, yeah. it's actually true to who you are as a person. It is true to me as my, as my own Brian. As, as you, what kind of, we're finding out what kind of Brian you are. That's right. <laughs> so what are the, what are the hours like for a, a high school teacher is like, I guess that's something that not everybody knows kind of like what a teacher does, but they don't know always mm -hmm. like behind the scenes, like when you guys get there, when you leave. So my school day, uh, and this is where there's interesting mm -hmm. union issues as well. My school day contractually is 8.45 to 3.05. Uh, there are different schools at different start times, but it should be like six hours and 20 minutes. That is the length of time of a, a school day. There are meetings we have to do. It's an extra 105 minutes. Again, that's a whole, like 155 minutes. It's a whole union thing too. My general philosophy is get there before the kids and leave after them. So I usually come to school about 45 minutes early mm -hmm. to get my own work done. If I don't want to have to do as much work at, at home, I do it in the morning at school. I prep my classroom. I prep my lessons. I print things out, whatever I need. And then I usually stay after school 45 minutes to an hour on a daily basis, depending on if it's for meetings, for teacher stuff, or for helping students, whatever it is. So I usually get there around uh, 8 and I leave around 4 or 4.30. And that usually doesn't end my work for the night, unfortunately. Um, it could be grading. That's usually like once every month, month and a half, I have a test or a project to grade. And that'll take, you know, X number of hours, usually about like seven to eight hours total. Um, some of it happens at school, some at home too, but a majority happens at home. Lesson planning, um, making phone calls home for students, positive and negative, uh, coordinating meetings. I mean, I, I set myself a limit. I said, I'm not going to do any schoolwork after 9 p.m. That's what I say, and that's what I do. I stick to it. And within that, I usually take like an hour for dinner, hang out with my yeah. wife, you know, other things like that. And if I do know I'm going to go out with friends at, you know, 7 or 8, I try to push my work earlier, or I try to plan around it so I do more work the days before, the day after. This year has been a heck of a lot easier because I've gotten better at the curriculum. And I think as you get better, it gets easier. And you are, like I said, the storage aspect of this. I have all the lessons I've run for the past three years. So next year, I'm going to tweak them, of course. Year after year, I tweak them. But I don't have to start from scratch. Mm -hmm. So it, it gets easier and it gets faster. At least that's my hope. <laughs> so, yeah, when you're done with the, the school day, what, what is your commute like? Or like, where, where do you live? Or do you live near the school? I'm lucky. I know something like the average or the median commute time in New York is 46 minutes, something mm -hmm. like that. Mine's a 12-minute bike ride door-to-door. -door. Very nice. Uh, yeah. On rainy days, I take the subway, and it jumps up to 25 because I live in Park Slope, and I have to take the R to the F or the G, and that switch is just annoying. Um, but I bike all year round. I got some, like, nice Under Armour stuff for the winter and a nice face mask so my mouth and my ears aren't burning off in freezing cold weather. But I, I like the bike. I, I like to get some exercise. I get to work, and my blood's already flowing. Um, and I just hate long commutes with a passion. <laughs> I, 46 minutes. So I, if you change schools in New York, you would probably try to find a new uh, apartment near there. That's the big debate. I am lucky. My wife also wants to live in our neighborhood. We have a pretty strong Jewish community where we live, and that's an important part of our lives. So I doubt we'd move if I got a new school. Okay. Uh, so my commute time would go up. I just hope I don't need a new school ever because I do love this one. <laughs> So what's your your background? You said you were from a uh, you 
You taught in Philly. You grew up in a suburb, but is it in Philly? Uh, I grew up in the suburb called Lower Marion, which people know because Kobe Bryant grew up in Lower Marion and went to Lower Marion High School. Uh, okay. I did not know him. I was not at school when he was there. No, uh, I so I, I also don't really follow any sports, so I don't really care about any sports. I don't really follow the NBA. Bryant. It's like the one I don't. Yeah. Well, <laughs> anyway, so I grew up outside of Philadelphia. I went to University of Pennsylvania for undergrad, and they accepted me again for grad school luckily so I didn't have to go anywhere and then I taught downtown Philly for four years and then I met my wife at this Jewish learning retreat she wasn't my wife then she was a woman then (laughs) Uh, and you know sparks flew we decided to be in the same city and when I realized my certificate could transfer up here pretty easily and her credits in these classes she was taking did not it made more sense for me to come up here and so I became a Brooklynite so what do you like and dislike about living in New York I like Brooklyn a lot. I really appreciate Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. The rest of New York, to a certain extent, scares me. Manhattan in particular. Because <laughs> the buildings are too tall. It's too dense. I love the museums. I love the culture. I love the food. But generally, I'm more of a homebody. That's my personality. So I either stick around my apartment. I see my friends who live within like a 15-minute biking radius. I go to Prospect Park and hang out with them on weekends, in the summer at least. And... In the winter, we go over people's houses and have meals, um, go to the movies, like just, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I don't really go that far. Uh, we did go to the Queens County Farm like a month ago for the sheep shearing festival, and I highly recommend that because we saw the sheep literally get a haircut with these enormous like sheer cleaver thing, like scissors, huge scissors. Weird. It was really, really <laughs> awesome. Um, but generally, I stick around Brooklyn and hang out with friends there. Uh, ironically, even though I don't like to travel as much in New York, I love traveling everywhere else. Mm. Which I don't know if your plan is to segue to that, but I, I love to go everywhere in the world. I've been very. Oh, we're we're, so. we're getting there. Just one last question yeah, about sure. New York: is uh, how long do you plan on staying in New York? Uh, well, as long as economically feasible. And so my wife and I are trying to figure out that long term. Yeah. Both of us have lived in communal situations like co-op type living, or I would call it an urban kibbutz from the Jewish background. The word kibbutz is like a has been known as a collective farm in Israel, but is transitioning to just be a collective housing unit. Interesting. Okay. So there's a concept of an urban kibbutz, and I've lived in two in my life for various periods of time. And we're talking to friends about, you know, if we can't afford to buy something solo because the prices are a million dollars or more for a one bedroom, what if we bought something as a group? Either a building or like one enormous brownstone that has, you know, six floors and 14,000 rooms and 16 million bathrooms with at least one with a huge bathtub for my wife. She wants that. Um, <laughs> and we just live together and, you know, raise children together and, and just live there forever. Nice. That's sounds the goal. Like, that sounds like a good, a really good goal. But yeah. All right. Let's, let's talk about travel hacking. Sure. Can yeah. you can you tell uh, the rest of the Brian some of these techniques? I wonder. Um, do you think non-Brian people are also going to listen? Oh, they're to the listening, podcast? but I just like referring okay, to good. the audience as Brian's. Good, wonderful. I'm, <laughs> I'm all with you there. Uh, so the the basic technique that we've generally been using, and I say we because my wife is fully in on this, is <laughs> credit card sign up bonuses. Okay. Uh, oftentimes, when you get like the United Mileage Plus Explorer card or the Chase Sapphire Preferred they'll offer you an introductory bonus. You spend X amount of dollars in three months and you get 30,000 points, 50,000 points, 80,000 points to use on whatever you want. So we have 28 credit cards. So we've gotten a lot of these bonuses. Nice. Uh, And I mentioned that in connection to the financial literacy unit I taught my students because it actually helps to have more credit cards 
and I told this to them as well, it sounds weird, but there's an aspect of your credit score and your credit report about the more you have, the more banks trust you because other banks trust you. So if I have cards with Chase and Citibank and American Express, then Barclays looks at me and is like, oh, all these people gave you cards? Sure, have five, go for it. So with those sign-up bonuses, we, you know, we get the bonuses, we can pay our rent with a credit card, which is definitely the reason why we can do this. Uh, and so we can meet those spending thresholds because rent is ridiculously expensive. And so we have to pay it, so why not get some bonus for it? Yeah. Uh, and so we've accrued a number of, uh, I don't know, probably six or 700,000 points over the past year and a half. And so we're using them. We're taking Korean Airlines first class from JFK through Seoul to Bali with a layover in Seoul of a day. We're doing uh, British Airways first class from Singapore to London. And then the creme de la creme, Singapore <laughs> Airlines first class, first suites, I should say, because they are suites, cubicles with doors that close. Nice. Although they don't go all the way up. I should clarify that because people often say, oh, what are you going to do when the doors close? And I say, no, 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 you understand. They can hear you and they can look over the doors. So nothing's going to happen. So we're taking that back from Frankfurt to uh, JFK. Okay. Um, so I read that uh, this – well, I read the article last night, mm-hmm. actually. And, the, and they said that travel hackers call this – it's known as the hobby. Yeah. <laughs> Do you refer to this as the hobby? Uh, and yourself as a, a hobbyist? Well, what's interesting, because I do it to this extent, I think it started out as a hobby, and I really love... Do you now put a the, the in front of it? No, it's, it might, it's sort of becoming a side business, actually. <laughs> uh, I was thinking about doing this more seriously last year, and then got a fellowship instead, so I didn't have time. But right now, I still tend to talk to my friends and family about how to leverage their miles, and I think the niche that I might want to fulfill is talking to engaged couples about how to pay with their wedding with credit cards so they can get points and their honeymoon can be really cheap and really awesome because that's exactly what my wife and I did. Nice. Uh, our restaurant that catered our wedding, we used the Chase Sapphire Preferred at the time. It had three times the points if you paid for something at a restaurant the first Friday of the month. So that's what we had them do. And we got a buttload of points because weddings are super expensive. you know. So if I can help uh, engaged couples do that, and I had a meeting with two friends of ours last week with exactly this point, I actually can refer credit cards to them, and then I get a bonus. If they get the credit card, then they get the bonus for spending on the credit card. And then I can help them get whatever honeymoon they want, within reason, obviously, with whatever points they have. So how did you get into this in the first place, and was your wife always on board with this? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We have a very clear rule that before I sign up for any credit card, I have to pass it through to her to Mm -hmm. check out. Uh, and so when I started doing this, like really two years ago, a friend of mine who had been traveling a lot and still travels a lot on United and Singapore Airlines and Thai Airways and whatever, usually in first class, he said, you know, you should get this credit card because it gives you these nice bonuses. And I said, why do I need another credit card? And he said, just trust me. Like, you, you want the bonus, right? You get the points. I, was, I knew what he was doing. And I said, I want to do what you do. And he said, well, to do it, start here. And so I did. And like four or five months later, I found out a friend of mine had 48 credit cards. And so I'm like, well, how do you do that without hurting your credit score? And he said, no, 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 Brian. It actually helps your credit score. And I think that really opened me up to this idea of multiple credit credit cards, credit score, whatever. And so since then, my wife and I have been accumulating credit cards. Some we cancel if we don't need them and they have an annual fee. But most often they're useful because we can get back value for the annual fee. You know, mm-hmm. if you get free bags or, you know, no foreign transaction free fees, primary auto insurance, whatever it is, you can get the money back. So 
and referral bonuses. You can also get the money back for that. So we just have all these credit cards. We use maybe three or four at a given time. One, we want to get the bonus, and the other ones have like category bonuses at restaurants or a grocery store or gas stations, whatever. Uh, and just leverage it so we can keep getting more and more points. So this sounds like a lot to keep track of. Where, how do you it keep is. track of all <laughs> It is. Uh, if you read any of these travel hack websites, they say yeah. there are a couple of things that are very much your friend. One, awardwallet.com is a website that keeps track of all of your points in one place. You can add all your accounts for airlines, for hotels, for car rental companies, even for Starbucks. Like yeah. You can put all those in one place oh, so it tracks all your okay. points. It tells you when points expire, how many you have, what you can use it for, etc. Another one is creditkarma.com. That's the one that keeps track of my credit score. It's an estimate. It's not the exact one that like TransUnion or Experian has, but it's never been more than 20 points off in my experience. So I rely on that, and it's totally free. And then the third thing is just individuals make their own spreadsheets. So I have a spreadsheet with all the credit cards, what bank it's from, when the annual fee is due, if I'm going to cancel it or not, when did I cancel it? Because some of these cards you can get the same bonus two years later. Yeah. So I have a couple of those in the running for like six months from now. But uh, all of these things really help me keep it in line. And then I put like Google Calendar reminders here and there if I want to cancel a card or renew a card or whatever it is. So it, it requires a lot of time and a lot of attention. <laughs> but it's like a, it is like a second job and it's kind of it's fun to feel like you're beating the system, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When I get on that Korean Airlines flight on July 17th, I want to feel great about being the system. <laughs> and have the airlines uh, ever been personally pissed at you or directed their feelings at acknowledging anything that you're doing? or Not so much. I don't know how big this frequent flyer travel hacker community is worldwide, but uh-huh. I don't think it's big enough to have an impact, like a huge impact on these airline companies. Yeah. Because they're still making enormous profits. They're still flying people everywhere across the globe and they're making money off it. And they find different ways of making money off it. Generally speaking, if you use frequent flyer miles to pay for flights, you're probably also going to be paying for other flights. Yeah. So one of the ways I get points is by finding deals on United or Southwest or JetBlue or whatever, but it still means I'm paying them for those things. Yeah. So I'm still paying them money at some point. It's just for the, the big tier items, like the first class plane tickets, I'm not. And I feel very good about that because I would not want to pay the $75,000 it would cost for my wife and I to take these flights this summer. Okay. So, um, so when I read that article last night again, there was like some techniques that they had mentioned that other travel hackers are using. Mm-hmm. And just want, let me know if you've ever used any of these. Sure. So I thought these were crazy. Well, this first one's not so crazy, but it's like booking your layover as your final destination. Mm-hmm. So it's like buying a ticket from point A to point C, and you get off a point, you sneak out at point B. Yeah. I Have haven't done that done personally, that? but I, I definitely know of it. Be- and this is a weird thing about flight rules and how airlines yeah. charge things. Sometimes it is cheaper to book you know, the layover yeah. instead of the direct flight. Exactly. The one where you have is if there's inclement weather, the airline's going to get you from point A to point B however they can. It doesn't yeah. have to go through point C if there's, you know, a tornado. So that's like the that's the problem with that. Yeah, that's the risk. And you can't check your bags. <laughs> right, and you can't check your bags. Um, airlines, this is infrequent. Some of them do, you know, freeze frequent flyer accounts if people do that too much. But I've only heard like one story of that happening, and I've read many, many articles about that kind of thing. So yeah, I just found that there was like a website called skiplagged.com yeah, skip that like lagged. does it like will find those routes for you. Yeah, and, and they it, got into trouble. And they mentioned they got sued by United Airlines. They got sued by United. Uh, <laughs> I think it was resolved where they 
one, although I'm not certain about that one. So that, I mean, it's yeah. really nice of that company to do it, <laughs> that whoever designed it did yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the airlines definitely don't want you to do that. I would hope it would be the similar thing to like Napster forced companies to realize a new way of selling music. Yeah. So skip lag. He's just finding force... an efficiency for people to get right. cheaper flights they're paying right. for. <laughs> right. In my opinion, as long as the person's willing to take the risk yeah. of not getting to point C, mm-hmm. then do it. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, this next technique I don't really understand is called fuel dumping. That's uh, fuel dumping or the mileage run. Is, is that what it is? Because it said it that it's confusing as the price algorithm to deduct, to deduct the cost of fuel from a ticket, often at an enormous discount. Oh. Uh, you know, I don't know that one as much then. That might have to do with some of those layover flights. You might pay, like, fuel surcharges. I know. Maybe that's it. Okay. Unless you go somewhere else. I know in uh, in London, for example, they have a lot of uh, entrance and exit taxes. It's not fuel dumping, but it's a similar idea. Mm-hmm. So if you fly from New York to London, your ticket will be $200 more than if you fly from New York to London to Paris. Okay. Because you're going through London as opposed to ending up in London. So there are probably other ways of doing the fuel dumping thing as well, where if you go through another city to get where you want to go eventually, you don't pay the fuel surcharge. I haven't done that myself. I don't know as much about it. Okay, and this third technique, uh, the last one I found was uh, that apparently is hush-hush around people because I guess it's on the edge of legality. Mm-hmm. It's called manufacture spend. That one I, I have done. That one you have done? I oh, have done okay. that one. Like, this would include like purchasing dollar coins from the U.S. Mint with a credit card. And that's then the Im- most well-known one, yeah. Immediately using them to pay off the charge. <laughs> yeah, so that's like the archetypal you know, yeah. holy grail that stopped existing like two days after they opened it. But... The U.S. Mint was offering people to buy dollar coins, and if you spent more than $100, they shipped it to you for free. <laughs> so if you buy $1,000 in coins, they ship it to you for free. You deposit those $1,000 in a bank account, and then you pay off your credit card bill. You have paid $0, but once you bought the coins, you got 1,000 points. Yeah. <laughs> so there are different ways of doing this. There used to be one through uh, Target, yeah. which a number of people did, and I did this also to a certain extent, where you would go to Target... They set up something called a prepaid red card through American Express, which was different from their standard red card because it had American Express associated with it. I think they did it for like the underbanked people who can't get bank accounts at Citibank or Chase. They could get it at Target. And you could use the Target bank, essentially, to do bill pay, to send checks for you, stuff like that. But then people like me came along. You could put money onto your Target prepaid red card with a credit card, up to $5,000 a month. So if you go to Target and put $5,000 on the bank account, you just made 5,000 points, and then you could use the Target account to pay off your credit card. So that's a very quick circle, right? Yes. Every month, you just go put $5,000 on, pay off $5,000. It lasted about six months, and then Target realized what was going on, and they started limiting you to $1,000 a month on credit cards, and then they took away credit cards as an option. So I believe it still exists that you can load on to your Target prepaid red card with debit cards, but there are no point-giving debit cards anymore in existence, so it doesn't matter. Okay, so aside from gateb3.com, <laughs> what are what are the best sort resources for learning how to get and use these techniques? The one that I started reading was called View from the Wing. A guy named Gary Leff is a, a businessman. He travels all over the globe. Uh, he's often on news reports, newspapers, and TV shows, things like that. Uh, the other big one people know of is the points guy. This guy 
it is his business. That is, it is his job, and he's actually based in New York City somewhere. And I wish I knew where because I want to go visit the office, <laughs> shake his hand, and just like chat with him for an hour. Um, a few others exist. One mile of time is a big one for family travel. Mommy points. This woman figured out you know how to leverage things to get you know three or four plane tickets on points easily for your family to go around the world. Things like that. Yeah. Um, and there are a bunch of other small ones. Flyer Talk is the community website okay. with a whole bunch of forums which you can get started. I read that at first when I was getting started, and now I look at it for specific things like. The red card, you couldn't actually buy it in New York State. So when I was with my wife in Providence visiting her family, we took a detour of an hour to, I think, Massachusetts somewhere, bought the red card there, and then we could use it back in New York because it was associated with Target. So like all these things, you read the nuances on Flyer Talk, and then you can go figure out how to use it yourself. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So all the Brian's out there, those are some great resources <laughs> if you want to learn how to hack the system. And according to this, Brian, it feels very good. Yes, it does. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now it's finally time for the Brian questions. Okay. Um, Let's start with the starting one. Do you know why your parents named you Brian? No. And they don't remember either. (laughs) It's it's a sore spot between me and my mom and dad. They just don't know. Whatever. Do they at least know why I versus why? Um, You know, they probably have thought about that. I've never actually asked that question. I've just been happy to have the I. To be honest. Okay. Okay. And, and what about uh, siblings' names? Uh, do you have any siblings? I have two: an older brother and a younger sister. Neither of whom are named Brian. Uh, but what are what are their names? I want to see where Brian fits in. Uh, Jeff is my older brother, and Adrian or Adrian is my younger sister. Okay. So, so Jeff, Jeff, Brian, Brian Adrian. Adrian. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And what have you named? Uh, do you have any pets? Uh, no pets. Uh, you named a car, a bike. Never uh, owned a car. I own a bike, but I haven't named it. Uh, I've named. <laughs> Computers, uh, a couple times. Um, what have you named them? I had uh, my first computer was an Apple G4 Tower, which I nicknamed G Force. Uh, and then my first laptop was another G4. I nicknamed that one G4 G Force Junior. And my most recent computer is an iMac, and I haven't actually named it. Now I feel like I really should have. I got it oh, five think, years ago. I think you need to name it now. I do. It's true. <laughs> All right, so two-part question now, dead or alive, uh, favorite Brian and Brian you would most like to meet. This is where this will come <laughs> this in. This is where this sheet comes in? Yep. Um, this is just a guide if you have any others off the, off the sheet. You know. Fa- we'll say it again, favorite Brian? Favorite and most like to meet. Most like to meet. Um, yeah. Oh, wow, there are some pretty good options here. That's so true. Ooh, Brian Setzer Orchestra. I like that, too. Um probably would like to meet Brian Setzer because I love big bands things like that uh, and okay. favorite Brian I don't know if I have a favorite Brian that's a really hard question uh, can I say myself I don't know it feels like a cheat it feels like a cheat if you had to choose a public Brian a public Brian as your favorite Brian now I gotta think about public Brian's out there yeah I mean I'll just I can take your time I can edit the silence out oh, okay <laughs> I, can, I can choose from this list um, Brian the dog Brian the dog? Yeah, he just has, he, he's so, <laughs> you know, sullen, but so important and poignant at times. So I'm yeah. going to go with Brian the dog. Okay, good answer, good answer. I like that. Uh, let's do a Brian trivia question. Mm-hmm. Um, this Brian uh, had a hit song uh, called Back at One. Back at One? Yep. And I can give you multiple choice. Go for multiple choice. All right, Brian Adams, Brian Wilson, Brian McKnight. Brian Johnson. 
And these are all artists, I assume. Yep. Okay. <laughs> these are all musical artists. Oh, my God. Uh, and the song was what again? One? Back so, at one. Back at one. And it goes like this. Or do you, or do you, do you have I it? would love for you to sing it. I'm not going to sing it, but it goes like... Okay. One, you're like a dream come true. Two, just want to be with you. Something, something. It sounds like Beach Boys, Brian Wilson. No. No? Brian McKnight. One Brian hit McKnight. wonder. One hit wonder. Okay. Yeah, released in 1999, Back at One went on to be one of his biggest successes. Okay, that was his top success. It reached mm-hmm. the, in the top ten in New Zealand, Canada, and the U.S., where it eventually peaked at number two for eight weeks behind Smooth by Santana. Oh, <laughs> that is a good song. I love Santana. <laughs> yeah, so Brian McKnight, Back at One, mm-hmm. solid Brian jam. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, if you had to ch- this is a hard one. If you had to fir- choose a first name other than Brian, what would you be? What would it be? You know, it's funny. When I was uh, a kid, a friend of mine, he and I, like, we mistook each other's names at first a number of times. And so he always called me Mike. And so eventually we, like, nicknamed it Mike Brian. So I think Mike or Michael, something like that. Like, okay, okay. Yeah. So you have a, a history of this name. That's yeah. It's a, a good reason. Uh, overall, has being a Brian been a plus or a minus in your life, would you say? Um, I think overall it's been great with a couple of funny anecdotes here and there here and there just people like pronunciation when i was living in israel i was working with some israeli arab kids that couldn't pronounce my name very well so they're always saying brian brian i said no it's oh, really? brian emphasize the bri like yeah brian 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 okay. yeah kind of like that Interesting. so uh, it, it was kind of funny that way i liked it i, I like yeah i like how that's i haven't heard that before yeah <laughs> um any memorable instances of your name being misspelled brain or just the general. All the time? Yeah, just, I mean, the, just the all the time. This is my grass. I disclose things. I even misspell it often when I'm <laughs> typing really fast and it comes out A-I-N by accident. I'm convinced it's the computer doing it to me and not my mistyping. But it, it does come out and I just click delete three times and slowly do I-A-N when I'm sending an email and it works out. <laughs> yeah. I haven't heard of any brides that, like who admitted to misspelling their own name yet, but you'll be the first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so actually, you had mentioned that you know you're glad you weren't a Y Brian. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think the Y Brian's and the I Brian should, d- don't get along, and there's inherent differences? No, I think we do get along, and I definitely. I had a friend in, in preschool. My mom told me who like he was also Brian. He spelled it with a Y, and we were really good friends. Yeah. And then in high school, I had a friend named Brian with a Y also, and we enjoyed that camaraderie too. Um, I will be honest; I always felt superior. Just like that, ever so slightly with at least the spelling of my name. It just, I, I've, I've learned about, uh, oh God, what's it called? Like typefacing from that awesome Slate.com article from so many years ago about do you have like monotype or whatever. And just, it's more efficient to put the I in the middle. The Y makes the Brian word too wide. I just want that I right in the middle. Oh, wow. I did. I had never heard this before. But, yeah. Um, I'm really nerdy. I'm not sure. That's no, no, no. Here. This, yeah. is, this is interesting because I like to learn new reasons why people prefer things yeah. for, around Brian's. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so now the I's have that up on the Y's. Yeah. Aside from being the majority of the Brian's as well. <laughs> uh, sorry, Y Brian's. But, sorry. you know. <laughs> um, so... I have to ask then, when when you first heard about this show, how did you hear about this show, and what was your initial reaction? <laughs> Somebody posted about it on Facebook. They, yeah. they you know, put my name on it, and I was like, 
I have got to do this. <laughs> I think it took about five minutes for me to see that and email you and be like, yeah. I am in. <laughs> and whenever I tell people about it, I told a friend of mine, I'm going to her going away party this evening, in fact. Yeah. I said, this is what I'm doing before I get to the bar. I'm doing this interview about being a Brian. And she said, that sounds weird. And I said, yeah, it sounds awesome, right? I didn't say awesome. I said weird. Like, yeah. I know, awesome, it's fine. <laughs> Yes, this this podcast exists uh, as a st- very stupid concept, but it's <laughs> it's turned out okay. <laughs> I'm I'm glad to hear it. All right, so Mr. Cohen. Yeah, I'm in Philly now. If I can call you Mr. Cohen, they often call me just Cohen, actually, which is kind of funny. Okay, it's the last name became the first name. It was a weird situation. All right, hey, teach Cohen. Yeah. What grade would you give me as an interviewer? As an interviewer, I think A plus. I'm yes. All this Ugh. research over yes. here. Yes. Questions, follow-up questions, yes. a good amount of wait time yes. to listen to my answers. I appreciate that a lot. Great. All, right. All right. Thanks, man. Thank you. <laughs>